It's all good evening. Now do you go Paul okay, guys? Right. Any questions tonight? Yes? Uh, at Sarkrahi you mentioned that during the Brahma Vimohan Lila, the, the, the mothers still liked Krishna as Krishna more than they liked their own sons. <laughs> uh, even though that they liked their own sons more than usual. But I thought like the point of the, the Balaram Vimohan Lila was that they actually liked their own sons more and he was confused about that. Yeah. I think what you're talking about is the fact that in the Brahma Vimohan Lila, of course, this is a Lila where Brahma is bewildered. Mohan means bewildered, and Vimohan means very bewildered. So it's a huge uh, display of Aishvarya, majesty, opulence, power, that exceeds anything uh, mentioned in the Bhagavatam that takes place and Brahma is witness to. And uh, this is uh, part of what uh, brings about the epiphany of, of Brahma that uh, constitutes the conclusion that Krishna is a source of Narayan, which, to put it in, in the Bhagavad language, Krishna is to Bhagavan Swayam. So this is the Leela, the Brahma Mimohan Leela, in which the, the, the sutra, if you will, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, which is one line of one verse of the third chapter of the first canto, I think it's the 28th verse, where the, it's a description of the avatars, because in the first chapter, as you know, Sutta Goswami uh, is, uh, um, has been asked some questions by the sages one of which is about the avatars and so forth. Of uh, and so anyway, so that that chapter is about the avatars. It begins with the Purushas, Mahavishnu, the first avatar means to cross over, to, to descend from up to down. So we have expansions of the Godhead in in the Paraviyom in the spiritual world. Then there's the crossing over, and that means avatars. So the first is the Mahavishnu, so forth. It expands into Shirodak. Garbhodakshai Vishnu, Shirodakshai Vishnu, and then many Leela avatars, and Yuga avatars, so on and so forth. So, anyway, there's some description listing of some of the avatars, and and um, in the end it says, among other things, there are Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, all, uh, all these previous dis- avatars described are Kala or Amsa, parts or partial parts of the Purusha. Who's Mahavishnu? Who's the uh, expansion of Narayan? Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. However, two Krishna is Swayam Bhagavan, which means the implication of, of it, of course, is that but Krishna is the source of Narayan, and this is, of course, uh, the uh, one of the, the the principal cornerstone of the foundation of Gaudiya Vaishnava uh, philosophy. And um, Chief Goswami wrote a whole Sandarbha, a whole treatise, Krishna Sandarbha, explaining this one line, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. So there is, that's the place in the Bhagavatam where it appears, statement. But in the 10th canto, in the Leela narrative, 
this whole point is brought out in the context of telling of the Leela. So Brahma, of course, his source is, is um, for one of the Purusha avatars, born from the lotus navel of the Garbhadaksha Vishnu. And um, um, in, in this Leela, he experiences Krishna, and he sees, through the manifestation of Aishwari or majesty, that while he has tried to test Krishna's power to see who he really is, he had met Krishna at the dawn of creation and received uh, initiation from him in the four seed verses of the Bhagavatam. But at that time, although Krishna was dressed like a gopa, he was acting like a guru with the Gyan Mudra and... and um, appearing as a, as a revered figure. And here, by Krishna's arrangement, Brahma is brought into his Brajalila through the slaying of Agasura, which became a, a big event in the heavens and was brought to Brahma's attention. And when he sees Krishna, it's almost like, Here's an imposter. This, uh, this guy's dressed up like my guru, but he obviously doesn't have the character of a guru. He's he's he's, uh, he's an ignorant boy, and uh, um, see how he's, he's he's putting food in other friends' mouths and taking food from them. And, and this is Vidhi. His name, Brahma's other name, is Vidhi. So it means he like the personification of the rules and and so forth. Uh, so. Um, so, of course, Krishna is bringing him in to show him hmm, what he's been initiated into. Because Brahma told him at the dawn of creation that he wanted to have a relationship with him as a friend, and Krishna accepted him. So now he's showing him what, the, what, what that amounts to, ultimately. And Brahma, well, Brahma's foreheads are blown, his minds are blown. And uh, just seeing that, and he can't quite digest it, so he thinks, you know... What, who is this, or what are his powers, to what extent? So with his own power, he, st- he appears to steal or kidnap the, Krishna's friends and the calves when Krishna wanders out looking for the calves. He steals the boys. And when he comes back to see the boys are gone, Brahma steals the calves. So Krishna manifests himself as the boys and calves. Exact replicas which indicates how well he knew their hearts. And their parents could not even detect, the cows couldn't detect that the calves were, were not their own calves, the, the parents could not detect that the boys were not their own sons. And this took went on for a year because of the, different, the time difference between Earth and Brahma. For Brahma, it was just a short period, but when he returned, a year had passed. Hmm? So... Um, Ultimately, Krishna reveals this, this fact to him, and then all of the boys turn into Narayans, hmm? from whom universes are emanating, and Brahmas, and Shivas, and, and so he realizes that Krishna is the, Narayans the source of the universe, Krishna is the source of innumerable Narayans, who are the source of innumerable universes. He feels very small, and um, so he has this epiphany. Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, basically. 
However, um, the, we call it the Brahmavimohan Lila, but um, Shamananda has referred to it as the Balaram Vimohan Lila, as I think I have said at times, because what to speak of Brahma being bewildered by the power of Krishna and his power, Brahma's power, in comparison being insignificant? Hmm? Balaram is bewildered by Krishna's power because for one year he doesn't know that uh, what happened or that anything happened. But um, one, one day, towards the end of the year, Balaram witnesses the cows, or the, the calves, I should say, um, the, the cows running after the calves down Govardhan Hill, like hightailing it, as they say. You know, cows run and they leap and they put their tails up in the air. That's where the term comes from. Down the hill. And the and the gopas, the elderly gopas who are taking care of them, are like, you know, what's going on? And they're struggling to get down the hill, and they're upset. And uh, the cows are, of course, racing after these calves that are all non-manifestations of Krishna. And the coward men get to the bottom of the hill, and they, and they meet their, their sons, and then all their anxiety goes away. And, everything, and, everything. and so they show greater affection for their sons than has been when seen previously, and the cows show greater affection for the calves than has been witnessed previously. It's an extraordinary manifestation of affection. Hmm. That, if anything, could only be likened to like affection for Krishna, hmm. which is the center of everybody's um, life there. So Brahma, Balaram wonders what's going on, and gradually Krishna reveals what's... And so even... Balaram was, was bewildered by the power of, of, of Krishna. So, one of the points that was raised in discussing this um, recently was that um, even though the mothers, for example, loved their boys more than their own boys because their boys were Krishna, they were still more attracted to Krishna than the manifestations of Krishna appearing as their boys because Krishna looks like Krishna <laughs> and has all the qualities and so forth uh, you know, manifest. These would be instances, or this would be an instance in which Krishna appears in a disguised form. Hmm? It's um, when we say that uh, Krishna is the uh, center or the very form of rasa and um, and the object of bhakti rasa of all types of rasa he's the object of love hmm? it means krishna and his avatars hmm? and in his expansions and in his disguised forms this is this is only one instance hmm? there are other instances where he disguises himself as well so so they're loving the disguised forms of krishna more than their sons, but they're still loving Krishna undisguised. More than their, more than in the disguised form, because he looks like Krishna. <laughs> so, what is your question about that? I, guess, I, I thought that what Balaram saw was, was that they they paid more attention to their own sons, whereas usually they would pay attention first to Krishna and then take care of their own sons. But now they were like the, like you said, the cows were 
focusing on their own caps instead of, of Krishna. Mm -hmm. Because Krishna has had come as the cap. So, so, so when you said that they actually like Krishna more as Krishna still, then what was the bewilderment then? Well, they like the boys more than, they, or the calves, the cows more than they, they would normally. Hmm? Uh -huh. okay. Yeah. But, but still Krishna, okay. Still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or in Krishna's absence, they were <coughs> conducting themselves as they might in relation to Krishna. Mm -hmm. hmm? And they still would be, but then now it goes to another level yeah. in their relation to Krishna. <laughs> Krishna, he's very wonderful. <laughs> what else? Another question. Yes. Did you have a question about this question? Uh, it's kind. Of, it's kind of related. Well, let's go with that one first. Okay. Uh, I was reading. Um, last night I was reading. Um, Bhakti Murata course Sharanagati with the commentary of Sridhar Maharaj. Yeah. And there's a line, and at one point I forget exactly what. Um, uh, is commenting on, but he says he's sort of, you know, he's, he's explaining what Bhaktivinoda Kaur said, and he says something like, um, "No matter who I know, I'm no only really relating to Krishna. Everyone is Krishna manifesting in my life." Essentially, the way I say it again. No matter who I'm, uh, I, I have a relationship with. It's I, they're actually Krishna. The people in my life are are Krishna. I'm dealing. Krishna and I kind of I wondered if you could maybe speak about what that is getting at that idea. And, and who's saying that? Bhakti Vinod? Uh Sridhar Maharaj is saying that. Uh in in, in, in his comments to Bhakti Uh-huh. Well, I mean I'd have to look at it uh to see the context, but I think that uh, to say that um whomever I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with Krishna, I'll I'll give another example. Um, of that that comes to mind um, and uh, this is uh, also uh, related to us by Pujapatrita Maharaj and that is the uh, the complaint of uh, Gorkhashar Das Babaji because Gorkhashar Das Babaji was an abadut which means he was like really not uh, didn't fit in to the world, the social scene, in any way, and uh, um, appeared kind of like a like a mad person, hmm? mad saint, and um, so being misunderstood by the people, sometimes he would uh, be abused by ignorant people. So apparently there was a apparently there was an instance where. Um, some young boys were harassing him and th throwing s stones at him and, and so forth. And um, so Babaji Marsh became very upset and he said, he said, you stop it or I'm going to tell Mother Yasoda on you. <laughs> so, and so that was where he was living. You understand? So he was, he was, he was, he was thinking, nothing's happening. He wasn't thinking like this, but I mean, this is the implication. Nothing's happening without Krishna's arrangement, but this Krishna's doing this to me. Hmm? I'm not outside of, uh, I've given myself to him. He's dealing with me. 
to this form or that form, and um, and this is an extreme sense of that. And he, it is, he becomes upset. He becomes angry. But it, it, it very, you see it now. And it, see, he's just a normal person. He's becoming angry. But then then he responds, and everybody just passes out. You know what? <laughs> You're going to report them to Mother Soda. So he's thinking, Krishna's, why he's doing throwing, throwing stones at me? Mm-hmm. So that's one way to you know, uh, answer that kind of question. But I think that, um, you know, in a broader sense, that the devotees do uh, try to uh, see that what happens to them in their life is, 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 is Krishna's arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um, because they've given themselves to Krishna, and um, and um, he's and they're chanting his name. He's in their life. Um, what would normally have happened to them could have been worse. Hmm? It could have been better. He might have made it worse <laughs> for reasons of his own. To in, Endear us to him, make us you know, call out to him that much more. There are examples of that. Um, uh, Bart Maharaj became attracted to a deer. He he shouldn't have, but Krishna arranged it. And then he died, became a deer. It's a whole story over a couple chapters, a couple lifetimes in the Bhagavatam. So, um, in the very least, I would say, uh, trying to view the world like that or respond in that way to things that happen to us without putting too much effort into figuring out why he did it. I remember one time Archon City brought her car to the gas station and accidentally put diesel fuel in it when it was a was a gas engine, which is not a good thing for your car. And she said, why did Krishna make me do that? <laughs> she, that was one of her questions for me. I said, well, you're going to have to ask him. Uh, <laughs> so um, <laughs> I wouldn't you know, try to get into the details and so forth. Or, uh, but, but, but I kind of looked at it as, well, the positive here is that uh, by thinking like that, to whatever extent that's true, it might be extent, true to one extent, it might be, just in a broader, that's not like Krishna's, you know, sitting in the back seat and makes makes her do that or something like that. But but, but in a broader sense, if we say, what would have happened to me, my karma, that's, that's not what I'm getting because I'm engaged in bhakti and bhakti has the power to uh, to dispel the, the prabhda karma, even the prabhda karma, um, or to adjust it in, 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 in some way, or to, to deal with it comprehensively, ultimately. But at any rate, you know, perhaps in a more remote way, hmm, uh, something worse could have happened, so to speak, relatively speaking. And so, but at any rate, the my, my thinking on it is is you might say, oh, nah, come on, that's not Krishna doing that. You know, that's your karma. Yeah. But your karma is something that at this point is. Not necessarily what it what it what it, what it would have been. Hmm. So it is Krishna's influence in your life, and the positive, I think, uh, overall, to uh, draw from just looking at things in this way, even though they might be a little bit simplistic, 
in, 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 in some sense, is that one develops a samskar for depending on Krishna. Krishna's done this to me. Krishna's done through this person, through that. Um, here I'm giving myself to him, and he's he's sending this to me, this uh, and taking this away, and something like that. So on a higher level and a lower level, it might be something that he's getting at in his his uh, commentary. Hari Priya, your question. Guru Maharaj, I was listening one of your lectures uh, some while ago, and you mentioned there historically that Christmas friends they have full confidence <laughs> in Christmas friendship. Like they are not doubting whether he's their friend. Whereas um, in uh, more romantic kind of relationships, there's often, especially in the beginning, feelings of insecurity or longing from the distance. So I was wondering, could you elaborate a little bit this side or this sentiment of Sakeras, like having full confidence in Christmas friendship? Uh, yeah, well... Uh this vishramba, this competence, hmm, is the pradhan. So it's it's the, it's the main. How would you translate pradhan? It's like the, the anyways, like the basis of hmm, substratum of of of, of friendship. Um, and friendship is fully expressed amongst equals. Hmm? So there's some sense of strong sense of equality within uh, friendship. So you'd have to, you know, just kind of, to really answer your question, kind of plumb the depths of friendly, fraternal relationships in a human sense, and uh, the experience of the gopas is, is, is not different, but it's Krishna, in one sense, but it's Krishna-centered, so it's not self-centered, and uh, as, it, as friendship is in this world, but... Um, um, So, uh, some examples. Uh, I mentioned the other day how the in Sakirasa, the Gopas, we could make a case, are burdened greater by separation hmm, than those in Vatsalya and um, Madhurya because we see instances in which they have to bear, to some extent, the burden of those in Vatsalya and the burden of those in Madhurya, a good example being that I cited the other day, that when they went to Mathura with Krishna for the wrestling match and everyone else stayed behind, of course it came a time now they had to return and Krishna was going to remain in Mathura. And so he burdened his friends with mitigating to some extent or being agents uh, with a mission to mitigate the feelings of separation experienced by Yasoda and by the gopis. So he gave a letter to Sridam to give the mother Yasoda to read to her and pacify her. And then he has to do this in the midst of his own separation from Krishna. He gave a letter to Subal to give to Radharani. He had to read to the gopis. But he's also experiencing separation. So he has to have a, you know, how you say, like... Uh, collect himself, you know, and uh, bear the burden of his own separation plus. Hmm? Um, so, um, he can, they can do this 
because of the confidence. Hmm? Part of the problem for the gopis and even the parents is that, well, kids grow up in regard to parents and they love their parents, but they have their own life with their own friends, adult friends, right? And they only come home on certain occasions. And so, so you know, there's, uh, they've, they've, they've changed. They, they used to be, you know, they used to be, sit on my lap, you know, and, and, and now you, you've got your own world, so to speak. Hmm? So there's some inhibition there, some about the, the nature of the relationship. Krishna goes off in the, to cowherd, and, you know, we expect him to come back, but maybe he won't. Hmm? But the, the friends don't have the same feeling. The lovers, of course, uh, we don't find the gopas saying, oh, you've gone to mature and found other friends. But the gopis think, surely he's found other lovers. <laughs> and and, uh, and in, in romantic love, there's, there's often doubts among the partners, the extent to which you know they love one another, they need some show of affection, and so forth. So... Relatively speaking, this is absent in, in the Sakiras because of this, uh, it's centered on this uh, confidence. And there's a very traumatic scene in the daily little that, of course, that occurs every day at the time of mid morning when Krishna is now leaving the village. And entering the forest with the cow- cows and his friends, and the trauma, of course, is experienced by it's mutual. It's experienced by Krishna and Nanda and Yashoda, the elders, Rohini, hmm? in Vatsaliras. So the Sakiras is pulling him into the forest, and Vatsaliras is trying to hold him back, hmm? and he is experiencing their their trauma. Hmm? Um, um, but it's his dharma to herd cows, and so, so of course he goes, and he enters into the forest, and and uh, and he's there for the whole day, and then he comes back, right? So when he comes back in, in the late afternoon, now the mother Yasoda and Nanda again meet him, and they show the same affection, but now they have... Um, They don't have the apprehension of losing him because he's, he's returned. He's going to be home. He comes safe. He's here. They worry about him all day. Now he's home. He's safe. He's here, and uh, he's going to be here for the whole night. And they're not worried about you know tomorrow yet. Hmm? Um, but when, as that happens, of course, Krishna now proceeds to the cow pen to milk the cows. Mother Yasoda insists, you know, you don't have to milk the cows. You've been out all day. You know, we can let somebody else do that. You should come, come in, bathe. Gorhini is cooked for you. And uh, uh, Atul Devi, they've cooked for you now. And uh, everything's prepared. <laughs> and uh, then you should relax. And uh, you're the son of the king of the cowherds. And Ram, come like this. So, so there's a pulling on. And, and Nanda Maharaj is very proud of the sense of responsibility that he sees in Krishna and uh, and and Ram, they become you know they've taken over the business, so to speak, of herding cows, 
And when they get back, um, instead of delegating, Krishna's personally taking charge of, okay, some of these cows now, uh, uh, they have just calved, hmm? so we're going to have to put them over here, and, and the calves are going to have to drink some of their milk. Typically we give them one teat, and, and, and that's sufficient, more than sufficient, and then we milk the other three teats. Hmm? Now some of the cows, calves have already been weaned, so they've already been um, nourished by their mother's milk for two or three months. And they're eating grain now and grass and so forth. So they're in a different category. So they'll be put over here, not with the calves, right? And then there are those who are no longer um, to be milked because their calves are going to be born within the next two months. So they're taken out of the milking line because now all that power and that energy that the cow is generating is, has to go to the calf. Mm-hmm. And then there are those who are have been bred and aren't lactating right now. So just you know, just to give a few examples. So Krishna has to sort out of the 900,000 cows of Nanda Maharaj, <laughs> all this out, he and Balaram, and they're taking charge and so forth. And meanwhile, every cowherd boy who's there has his own herd, mm-hmm. some large, like Sridham, he's from a wealthy family. Rishabhanu Maharaj is like the second king of Braj, you know. So then some have a very small herd, right? Uh, but they've got to all be separated out. So there's a big chore going on at that time. And Krishna's taking, Ram's taking full responsibility. So Nanda Maharaj is very proud of them, feeling pride, and this is the extension of himself. As I said, they're taking over the father's business. But at the same time, um, he, he's being pulled by the insistence of Yashoda and Rohini that he should come in now and let, let others take. And so he acquiesces to that, and he doesn't disagree with them. He appreciates what his son's doing. But he's been in the forest all day, and despite that he's doing this, he doesn't have to do I can arrange for others to do this, and, and so forth. And so in they go, well, of course, Mother Yasoda says, you know, I've cooked this, and I've cooked this, and I've cooked that, and this, and Rohini's cooked this, and, and so on and so forth. And Mother Mongol, of course, standing there with Krishna, says, come on, you know, they're right, they're right, you know, we should, we, we have to go. We should eat. I'm famished. And so now it becomes, it was Nanda and Yasoda against Krishna and Balaram, and now, then now, uh, uh, Mother has defected. To their side, it's three against two, and so they win. And Krishna and Balaram head into the house. Ports all the, the, the friends go with him, <laughs> and the elder Gopas who are there, they take care of the cows and so forth. But now, to the point, um, having come in and whatnot, it's time for the boys to go home to their own homes. So now, this is the point of that's, that that is comparable to the morning when the Sakiras is competing, so to speak, with the Vatsaliras and winning the day, and Krishna goes into the forest. Now Vatsaliras has got him at home, and now the boys hmm, have to depart from him. Hmm, go to their homes. The, the principal, Subal, Sudama, Sridham, the 
paradigmatic figures, the, uh, the group leaders, and then they all have their followers. All their followers go with them. They assist them, render some personal service, and ultimately they go home and milk their one or two cows, as may be the case, right? Hmm. So anyway, now they're le- they have to leave. So they don't want to leave. Hmm. Krishna doesn't want them to leave, but their mothers, just relative to the Leela, have to bring them home so that they are. Mother Yasoda sides with the mothers. Yes, the boys they have, to, they have to go home, the cows have to be milked, and, and so forth. And so there's this de- scene of departure. Now this scene of departure is not given the same measure of attention by the poets, typically, that the scene in the morning is when Krishna is again departing into the forest and it's told over and over again, sung about and the the, the pathetic, if you will, uh, I don't mean in a negative sense, but uh, the plight of of Yashoda in in particular. So this this is another scene of departure, and it's the opposite, but it's not given the same attention. And this is one of the reasons, hmm? right? Because of the nature of of Sakurasa. Hmm? They have to go, and they can di- digest it, so to speak. Krishna is it's very it's a very affectionate scene. Krishna turns to them, and uh, and embraces every one of them, hmm? and. Uh, uh, remembers something about the day that happened, hmm? relates it, and they 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 they, they express in the, in that public scene, if you will, the the full measure of their their sakirasa. Hmm? But uh, and and and, uh, and Krishna more or less tells them that. Between, he holds their hands and he says, "You know, we share a secret that that no one else knows." So it's, he's like pressing on, or just expressing this confidence. We have a secret that no one knows. All day we're there, and it's this the secret is among among secrets. So many secrets we have that nobody knows, and nobody would believe you if we told them. And the overriding secret we have is the bond of friendship that we have with one another that no, no one knows. This is particularly now expressed in relation to Samanda Rupa Bhakti. Samanda Rupa Bhakti is the kind of bhakti that we find in, expressed as parental love, fraternal love, or servile love. So, Vatsalya, Sakya, or Dasya. That's called Samanda Rupa. The form Rupa of Samanda relationship. Friendly relationship, parental relationship, uh, teacher, student type, servant master type relationship. The other type of rag bhakti is called kamanuga. Hmm? So it's not based on sambandha, but not based on kama. One of the ways to understand this is that the word kama means lust, hmm? it, which is a departure from the norm. Hmm? And and a depart and departure from appropriate behavior. Hmm? You know, if you're sitting around and, and at the table and and everyone's, uh, you know, there's one more piece of cake left. Who wants it? And nobody says I want it, except your Mata Mangal. You know, uh, it's unbecoming, right? Hmm? So, 
that's to give the broader, again, uh, use of the word kama. Hmm? So in the case of the gopis, of course, the kama is, 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 a, is a romantic uh, uh, desire, and it's, uh, it's, it's in the context of parkia. So it's not a relationship, sambandha, that's, that's allowable in the, in the context of the lila. Hmm? So it's a departure from the sambandha, in a sense. Hmm? It's based on something else. It's not an acceptable relationship. So it has a certain breaking of the norms type of element to it, which which is it intensifies it. Hmm? Hmm. So, um, I wanted to make a point. Uh, so, that with regard to the um, uh, okay, with it, so within sambandha rupa, hmm, which is the vatsalya, sakya, and dasya. One of the ways in which Sakiras is thought to be superior, hmm? subjectively by the Sakas, but objectively, there's some objective measure. And what Rupa Goswami says is that is that Krishna and his Gopa friends they feel the same way about one another. Hmm? So this is again this confidence and equality. I know exactly how I'm feeling about you. I know you're feeling exactly the same about me. Hmm? We don't find that in parental love. We don't know that the child is feeling the same ways about the parent. He could be thinking, you know, in a, in a, in a, get me out of here, you know, <laughs> or in a, in a romantic, or, or in, a, in, a, in, a, in a servant and uh, or master and servant relationship. Hmm? But the equality and the confidence <clears throat> arising. In that, um, um, in, 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 in fraternal love, has this feature, and it's, it's thought to be on, on this account, excel that of Vatsalya and Dasya. And so, this is a this is what he means when he says, for example, this, we have a secret, amongst many secrets, what happened in the forest. This is our secret. You and I are one. We feel exactly how you feel, I feel. And so, as you can see, just by talking about it, we get some idea of, of the, the confidence, right? So Krishna gives this kind of assurance, even though it's already there, and they but this is a time of departure. They express it back. And then, then of course, among, about secrets, Krishna will turn and look at the Narmasakas and, and smile and lower his head. There's another secret over there. That's another secret that you guys know and I know about something else about me and so on and so forth. So this is the scene. It's not, hasn't been really brought out, like I say, um, by the poets, uh, for the most part, but we're just bringing it out a little bit here tonight in answer to your to your question. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. So, so vishramba, vishramba, confidence, hmm. vishvas, strong faith. Hmm. They, uh, if they see some. Um, 
let's say in the Prakat Leela, some impediment comes, some demon or something like that, they have the confidence that Krishna will will take care of him. Mother Yasoda wouldn't have the same confidence. That's talking about it in, in another sense. Uh-oh. But they think, I could do it myself, but certainly he could do it. <laughs> what else? Yes. Kumarash, uh, maybe you could help me understand some point that I've been thinking recently about um, how to say scripture. Um, um, in one way, it's a little bit like premature, or not premature, but, but sort of like a neophyte way to see a scripture as, as very scientifically provable, for instance. Oh, well, there was all these plants really actually existed. There's a place here that existed. So we want to verify our scripture, but in in one sense, um, this isn't really the point of the scripture, as far as I'm understanding. Um, the scripture is sort of like a metaphor in a way, just to unlock something within us that's inhibited, um, perhaps. But then again, um, these things took place. Really, actually, they did take place, or did they? Krishna was there, he left his footprints there, or or did he? How to understand? I think that um, a broader uh, uh, issue that the scriptures, sacred texts, uh, bring up um, is as with regard to reality. It's kind of what you're asking about. Hmm? Is 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 what are, what's real? Is there a moon there, or is there just perceiving a moon? And that's where everybody's—not everybody, but some people—are going. <laughs> you, you know, you, you, you talk about an objectively real, scientific, observable world. Well, even in the scientific community, it's said to be something that you that you cannot really experience in its virgin state. What it is, you're invariably um, uh, uh, removed from it by the subjectivity that uh, you're perceiving it with, right? So. We say there's an objective world, but basically what we say it is, is it's like a, an ocean of potentialities. He was like a quantum kind of, you know, terminology. It's an ocean of potentialities. And we would say then, the will in relation to that um, causes those potentialities to manifest. And they manifest... Um, you know, a little bit differently to everybody. So the subjective is is primary. The objective is 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 secondary. The objective is arising out of the subjective. <coughs> hmm? So this is a very main point. The objective world is relative to the subjective world. The scientific community goes about it in a kind of a backwards way. The problem, as it's thought, with spiritual explanations like this is that there's a lack of explanatory um, detail. It's reassuring 
the spiritual perspective that posits meaning, value, purpose, life beyond the present limitations and so on and so forth is reassuring to the human society. So it's it's not likely to go away too soon. But the way it's thought about is despite its being reassuring, it lacks explanatory power. You understand? So if I say, I'm a soul, I'm not the body, that could be reassuring. But now if you can explain that to me, what they mean by that is in scientific terms, where is the soul? Where is it located? You know, What does it look like? How does it do what it does? And, and so on. Because they're looking for different forces and matter and, and so on. So the problem is the, the, uh, uh, to explain it. Now, of course, we would say, you know, you're trying to explain something spiritual on physical terms. That, that's a contradiction to begin with. But, but, but anyway, to go to the other side of it, the other side of the problem is, is what? The other side of the problem is that there's an explanation, let's say an, an evolutionary naturalist explanation of our faculties, which would include consciousness as a, as a, you know, an epiphenomenon, let's say, of the brain or, or any number of ways in which they talk about it from a materialistic point of view. But unfortunately, that naturalistic evolutionary explanation that does not look outside, as it's thought, of the objective world to explain everything, it doesn't posit, it, posit anything separate, any, anything spiritual, supernatural, dealing only with the natural. So our faculties, like our reasoning faculty and so forth, are all explained within a naturalistic evolutionary perspective. I mean, not to the satisfaction of everybody, but they're explained. But in the context of explaining them, their power, the, the power of rationality hmm, to um, arrive at, at truth is undermined by the very explanation, as is, by extension, the very theory of materialism. Which is a, a rational explanation, you know, uh, using, uh, employing rational faculties to come up with an explanation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Kind of. Huh? In other words, if we have a natural, uh, a materialistic, a, a naturalist evolutionary explanation of life, hmm, rational faculties are not what we think they are. Hmm? Neither is the self what we think it is. Hmm? There, in other words, there are no right or wrong thoughts. Hmm? That's, a, that's a total illusion. Hmm? So now you, you've explained these faculties, but you've undermined their power to be useful in arriving at something real. Because they're not real. Hmm? They're just an illusion. There's no right thought, there's no right action, there's no wrong action. This whole idea of positing a right or a wrong, whether it be in the realm of thought or rationality or action, these are just constructs of an illusory self that doesn't really exist. So, you know, in that explanation, 
you've undermined the whole idea. The whole idea is, is arising out of that rational faculty, which has no power. You've undermined its power, and by extension, very theory itself. So it becomes absurd. So that's its problem. So which do you want? Hmm? That problem, or the lack of explanatory... Hmm? Uh, lack of explanation hmm? to pin down and objectively prove that you're a soul, that you're an atma, when the very premise is that the soul is not physical and you're looking for, well, if it's there, how, how can we measure it? Well, what if it's immeasurable? Well, you know, it could be, you know, that doesn't fit into the, into the perspective, the, the, the premise that everything's measurable. Hmm? But we don't, have to, we don't have to accept the premise that everything's measurable. Hmm? I mean, so, so, what I'm saying is that one of the things that Scripture tries to do, instead of posit stories and planets that are in leelas that are same impossible and are really just myths um, and so forth, um, that maybe you can draw some meaning from, but aren't real in an ontological sense. Um, uh, what they're 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 making the point that the world that you think is real is a fantasy. Hmm? <laughs> so that's a, you have to di- digest that because hmm? we want to we want to verify the spiritual on the basis of the material, as if that's already been established, that what's out there is what's real and it works like this and uh, and so on and so forth. Like I've said before and written about, there was a fellow years ago, I forget his name, wrote a book called The Ghost in the Machine, and it was taught in all the universities in the United States, and it was basically a philosophical exorcism of this idea of the soul being in the body, which was which was was which was the machine, by way of putting forward a mechanistic explanation of our lives that doesn't require any soul, right? That maybe previously it wasn't the explanation wasn't there. Therefore, they believed in some soul, but now we know it works like this. It works like this. And maybe we haven't buttoned the whole thing up entirely explanatorily, but, you know, we will shortly here. But over time, hmm, one can make a good argument, and I heard Noam Chomsky, who's a pretty well-thought-out fellow, make the argument that more than the ghost being exorcised from the machine, the machine has been exorcised. In other words, we thought we knew what matter was, this mechanistic explanation of life, uh, in classical physics, hmm, where there was no need to talk about consciousness, we got everything figured out here. How it works. These are the forces, and 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 so on. So maybe there was a god, but he just like turned on the machine, and now it works. There's no like intervention from outside, miracles or anything like that. But coming into the tw- uh, the, uh, the what the twentieth. Twentieth century, you got the, the quantum perspective that just like uh, turned everything upside down because things were ha- observed to be happening on a um, atomic level that contradicted hmm, 
like the like the principle of you know non locality, non locality within space, non locality within time. Hmm? These are things that can be observed through uh, experiment hmm? in the in the in the um, quantum uh, subatomic realm. It means, for example, non locality with regard to time. So if I if I take uh, take this glass and I drop it after I drop it there will be a sound well it can be demonstrated in experiments that there's a time non-locality in which the sound could appear before the before the cup hits the ground so what that doesn't like that's not how our world works but that is how the world works Hmm? and to say well, it works on the subatomic level like that, but not on the macro. That's, that's like, well, you just don't want to talk about it. <laughs> What's really being said is well, how you think it works. It's not how it works. And then when you, it, 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 and then there's the space non-locality. It's something, any particle, however far away it is, zillions and zillions of miles, it remains related to another particle. And they're all, all the particles are all related. So it happens here. I guess you could say it could be happening there it, it, at the at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then there's the there's the there's the time space combined non-locality, which is like you know that just turns everything up, upside down. So um, there's something that scripture is telling us mm-hmm. that you don't know what maya what matter is mm-hmm. maya. It's immeasurable. Maya means to measure. Hmm? And Maya means that which is not. So that is not something that you can do, that you can measure the whole thing, bring it in the fist of your intellect and, and understand it. But if you want to understand it, to understand it means you've risen above it. Hmm? There's a way to transcend it, to rise above it, and understand it, what it is, in terms of what it does and what and how it has an effect on consciousness, and how consciousness can be freed from that, um, those, um, that in, that influence, hmm? and be unfettered. Hmm? Um, it is unfettered by time and space, but to experience it's it's the fullness of itself. Hmm? So, uh, as you can see, when you look at it like this, scripture is not just positing some fancy stories that, well, you know, they have meaning. Hmm? But it's it's weighing in on what you think reality is that you're trying to use as a gauge to measure what the scripture is also talking about as to the possibilities of consciousness unencumbered by the illusion that I'm confined and restricted by time and space. Hmm? Let us say that you're not the body, to use Prophet's terms. Let's say that there is something called consciousness that that exists independently of body and mind. Now, that's not too much of a stretch, right? Hmm? Okay. Um, that there's an underlying, all-pervading s- substance, if you will, call it consciousness. Hmm? And it exists independent of time and space, independent of matter. 
independent of the world that's observed, is consciousness. Can consciousness... Now, what is the content of our consciousness? The content of our consciousness is the world, right? The objective world. Images and thoughts about it and so forth, right? So, what we're really asking is, if we're asking, can consciousness exist independent of matter? Well, that's like saying, can there be contentless consciousness? Right? Well, yeah. That's what happens in deep meditation. There's contentless consciousness. Hmm? I went into meditation deeply. This would be more in a, you know, in a gyan sense. Hmm? And, and I experienced, I turned off my mind. Hmm? My body sat still and I experienced the bliss of the self. Then I came back into time and space and I can tell you about it. It was, it was, it was extraordinary. Hmm. So people are doing that, right? So this is the very, you know, you know really basis of that, that, that there's something that consciousness can exist. It, it's saying that consciousness can exist independent of, of, of matter, independent of physical and what we would call psychic matter thoughts. Can consciousness exist independent of thought? Well, that's what meditation is all about, right? It's about stopping the thoughts, which are all about things. Hmm? Taking the content out. So, we have a good example here. Hmm? It's not hard to believe that consciousness exists independent of matter. Hmm? So, that's reassuring, as I said. This is our explanatory, whatever, our explanation. Hmm? We want to we try to you know, bring it to you on the terms that you, you, you want us to as far as possible. So we're saying, look, here's the objective evidence. This person sits and, uh, in a cave for 30 years and he's blissful. Hmm? Uh, he has no, 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 no wants. What more evidence do you want? That his body won't die? We, we, that's not part of our theory. <laughs> our theory is that his body is different than himself and it will pass away and, and, and so forth. It doesn't mean that he's going to die. Hmm? Right? The light bulb will go out, but electricity is still there. So, we're, as, far, as far as possible, we're trying to bring you objective evidence because that's what you want. That's the world you live in. We don't think that's necessary, but that's, we're talking to you, so you need it. I'm not, not saying you, but I mean a, a naturalist. Um, we will we, we'll point to here is a person who has controlled their or harnessed their human passions. That's supernatural. Try it. Hmm. So, wow, that's extraordinary evidence that, that should be give some credence to, the, to what we say is happening. You may say, well, you think that's what's happening, but something else is happening. Well, you know, maybe. Go there and see how you talk about it from them. You know, you'll start talking about it the way we do. Um, that's our conviction. But at any rate, 
The point is this. It's not that much of a stretch at all. It's perfectly, absolutely rational hmm, to lead one's life as if you are an Atma, hmm, ultimately, and to, and to pursue the full experience of that. That's a perfectly rational um, way to live your life. You may say it's perfectly rational to live a life on the uh, basis of the materialistic, philosophically speaking, perspective, where there's no atma, there's only matter. You can say that, but then your your world view, your reality is not rooted in rationality. That worldview, as I said earlier, does not give rationality the place that that the spiritual worldview gives it. We don't give it everything, but we give it some power. Hmm? Because our explanation of rational faculties is not the same as the explanation given in modern materialism, naturalism. Hmm? We say there are right actions and there are wrong actions. We say there are right thoughts and there are wrong thoughts. In naturalism, there are no right or wrong thoughts. The whole idea of right or wrong is... Can't ask a rock if it's right or wrong that he fell off the, you know, off the shelf, and you know. <laughs> so the whole idea of right and wrong is positing that 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 that, that, that there's that, that there's something more than just material physical forces interacting. So we actually, if you want to be a rationalist, the spiritual perspective gives more power. Hmm? Uh, to rationality, it, it 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 finds a world rooted in rationality, in, in the sense that there's meaning, there's purpose. Hmm? In materialism, you've taken out that's not rooted in rationality, and then you use rationality to, to try to convince us that, it, that it's not used rooted in rationality, as if that's supposed to be rational. So. It's okay for us not to, not to buy that. We're okay. We're not unreasonable to think that doesn't make sense, but thanks. Hmm? But I've never seen a soul. Well, you know, good for you, you know. Okay. You, you don't want to try our method because you haven't seen it, but we say, you know, try it and then you'll see it, you know. <laughs> a lot of things you haven't seen, but if you don't, if you don't go there, just because the way to go there is different, well, what we're talking about is something very different. So the way to go there should be different. You're used to going there like this. Now you have to go, instead of reaching out, taking, you have to go within and let go. And you don't want to let go, do you? No. Well, stay where you are then. You are where you're, where you're attached. Let go of the attachments, what the possibility is. So, that's very rational. Now, that's only the ABCs. Vedanta, right? That consciousness exists independent of time and space. We haven't begun to talk about now what the possi- what what the possi- what the implications of that are. You've been measuring the narratives of Krishna Leela 
based on what can happen, as you perceive it, within time and space. This can happen, that can happen. Hmm? Right? But now we said, we, 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 we've gone beyond time. We just concluded that there's a, there's a, there's a distinct possibility that there's life beyond time and space. Hmm? And that it's blissful. It's not based on attachment. It's not based on taking. It's based. It, 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 it moves by in the opposite way. Material life is all about taking and securing and struggling to survive. Hmm? Right? Survival of the fittest. It's a, it's a struggle. Hmm? This is letting go of the struggle. Hmm? Not taking. Hmm? It's friendlier. Not taking is part of loving. Hmm? Letting go. Hmm? And you're becoming bigger, softer, and you're surviving. Hmm? Now, this is just as I said, that, that, that you just put your toe in the water of the ocean of, of the world of consciousness. What, what possibilities lie there? What could go on there? What could happen there? Do we have to measure whatever has been talked about in that realm from mystics in our tradition by whatever can happen within time and space? And we don't even know all the things that could happen within time and space. We thought time and space meant if you drop the glass, then the sound will come. But now we found that the sound could come before the glass falls. Well, we don't even know what matter is, and we want to reduce the soul to matter. Maybe, maybe we should figure out what matter is first, before we get so proud of ourselves hmm, that, we, that, that we dismiss um, the, 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 uh, the spiritual ideas that I'm putting forward. So, now the narratives of Krishna Leela, what are they about? They're about the possibilities of love in a world where love has a possibility to exist, and universally so. Because, again, it's not based on taking. There's no need. The Atma has no need because it's not dependent upon time and space. Our body is our cell and, you know, Time is our is our space. Uh, our space is our body, and our time is uh, uh, is our sentence, cell, whatever. With <laughs> the cell and sentence, time and space. Hmm? We got out of that now, hmm? so we have nothing to fear. We have no no necessity to take. So where are we now? Well, we must be in a world where there's a realm where the such necessities don't exist. It must be pretty friendly. There's no ignorance. Hmm? So, a friendly, friendly realm. Hmm? And if we want to talk about it and explain it, let's look at the what we would maybe call a reflection of that world, which is which is the world that everybody's trying to get to. We say, the world of Krishna Leela is the world everyone's trying to get to. 
everyone is trying to get Dasya, Sakya, Vatsalya, Madhurya hmm? in relation to different objects. That's what the whole thing's about. Hmm? Everybody's living for that. You want kids, you want the best kids. You want the wife, or husband, you want the best partner. You want friend, you want the best friend. will never fail me. Hmm? Is that now what everybody wants? Hmm? Right? So, of course, we're going about it in a way that, that really constitutes taking in the name of that. It looks like that, but because we're, we're, we're basing our sense of self on the, on the body, or which is, again, our cell and sentence, in time and space, then it's problematic. And we're, we're doing that in relation to somebody else also. So, but what we're trying to do is experience Sakya Rasa, Madhurya Rasa, Vatsalya Rasa. Hmm? So, now, given what we've discussed, it seems like there's a possibility for that in this other world, right? In the realm of consciousness, unencumbered by time and space. Now, let's go further. We're a unit of consciousness. Are we the whole of consciousness? Well, if we were, then how do we find ourselves in the predicament where we we're, where we're our, our existence beyond time and space was obscured in terms of our own experience of ourself by the influence of matter when we came into illusion. Right? We were in illusion. So by that we might reason that I'm a spark of consciousness, obviously subject to this kind of conditioning. I can get free from it. But the source of consciousness would be different for me in that sense. It would be one with me, but different for me in that it's not subject to the illusion. Like, take the example of the fire. Okay, a spark from the fire could get obscured by the smoke, but the smoke is not going to overtake the fire. So, and for that matter, if there is love in the realm of consciousness, then there's reciprocal dealings. It could be with other individual atmas, but from our point of view, each one is like a ray of the sun, and Krishna's the sun. Each one's like a spark of the fire, Krishna's the fire. And so we turn our pursuit of sakya, which is what we're doing anyway, vatsalya, madhurya, in relation to what's been described as the perfect object of love, and trying to explain that perfect object of love hmm? with the use of uh, poetic device and so forth. Hmm? The Acharyas have explained it. Hmm? Now, that's kind of a rational explanation hmm? that that turns the Leela into Oh, a way of talking about a possibility, hmm? friendliness, the abstract friendliness, friendship, abstract uh, romanticism, 
exists. Now, but we're trying to make it more concrete, right, by giving the details and so on and so forth. So now someone may have a problem with that. So it's not really like that exactly, but that's just a way of talking about friendship, romanticism with the absolute. So if you need, we can talk about it like that, abstractly. But, but, um, our charities have experienced hmm, the drama itself hmm, and told us we can have a, have, a, have a part in it. And Krishna, well, according to history, has, is a person who appeared in the world hmm, in India. Hmm, there's some evidence <laughs> from a materialistic point of view of that. And the theory is that he, if he's seen through the eye of devotion, then he's going to be looked at in a particular way, and that's the way in which he has been described through the eye of devotion, through Vyas and his samadhi. Hmm? So um, what we say about the Leela narratives hmm, is that, um, that they're real in the fullest sense of the term. They actually happen, are always happening, hmm? always happening in the heart of some devotee, somewhere. Hmm? They're happening beyond time and space. Sometimes they appear within time and space. That's the Prakat Leela. But when they appear within time and space, they're only going to be perceived for what they are by those who have approached them with the right methodology. Hmm? Therefore, Prabhupada often said, not everybody looked at our Christian like Arjuna and the Pandavas did. Although he was right there. So people say sometimes, well, let me know when God shows up. Well, you know, he has already, but you didn't you don't know you don't know what to look for. So if you don't have the eyes to see, which is a philosophical eye and in a lifestyle and and so on and so forth, and then you're gonna see something something else, right? So the devotees see him in a certain way. The eyes tinged with the salve of love. And Vyasa's writing about that. And he's trying to explain, he, what he's trying to do in the Bhagavatam is explain this person is extraordinary. Hmm. And, and I, what can I say? He's sweet and he's powerful at the same time. He's all powerful and all sweet. Hmm. And so, now, the attempt to speak about that, the attempt on the part of our mystics to explain their experiences and re- relate a leela as they do with details, is an attempt to give us impressions for such uh, transcendental love. And we say, in another sense, they're not literal in that they are more than what is being explained in language. They're more than that, but they're more of the same. Hmm? Does that help? Yeah, thank you for God's idea. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So we we have, we're okay. <laughs> we're, we're we're reasonable people, hmm. even as we 
as our book gives a good, Bhagavatam gives a good bashing to the intellect and tries to put it in its place. It's, a, it's ugly, can rear its ugly face or head and try to rule over us. Hmm? That everything will have to fit into between our, between our ears. That's irrational. Hmm. All right. Sri Gopal ki jai. Gauri Vaishnava Guru Parampara ki jai. Gaur Bhakta Brinda ki jai. Gaur Premanandi. Hari Gaur.